Hi, and welcome to Straight Shot Radio. My name is Johnny Slick, and I'm the owner and head coach at Straight Shot Training. I've got a wide range of topics that I'm going to get into today, thanks to some great questions from some of my friends at the Frederick YMCA. We'll go over how to maintain total fitness while pursuing specific fitness goals, whether or not you should buy organic, when and why to take vitamins and supplements, what to do when you hit a weight loss plateau, whether or not you need a protein powder, where you can get your protein from besides chicken breasts, and why a certain gym staple needs to go. Like I said, we'll get through a lot today, so let's get right into it. Okay, our first question is from Megan. Megan asks, how do you work towards specific fitness goals while still balancing overall fitness? This is a great question, Megan, because the fact that you're asking it means you already know that it's difficult to work towards a specific goal while still trying to maintain all of the other aspects of your fitness. Because too often people get discouraged when their squat numbers drop, when they train for a half marathon, or when they lose strength while losing weight, or they lose flexibility when gaining muscle mass, or when they start lifting super heavy. And anytime you set a specific goal for yourself, you have to do that thing more often in order to get better at it. So this is a concept known as specific adaptation to impose demands, or the said principle. And the problem with the said principle is that in order to get better at one thing, you'll have to do some other things less in an effort to skew your training towards your goal, because you can't have everything all at once. This is why even though at Straight Shot we offer a balanced functional fitness program, we still spend some time working on specific aspects of fitness throughout the year in order to better target our weaknesses. And the way we balance it all, and the way that you can balance all of this too, is we continue to try to maintain or mitigate losses in other areas while working towards a specific fitness goal. So if you're training for a marathon, you might need to lift a little bit less and run a little bit more. So make sure some of your lifting is with heavier weights in the lower rep ranges so you can try to keep as much of your strength as you can while you're getting ready for that race. If you're training to get stronger or to, to gain muscle mass but you don't want to lose your cardiovascular fitness or, or your speed, you could do some cardio once or twice a week to try to maintain what you have for the most part. So think of your fitness as a circle and your goals are at the edges of this circle. So to be completely balanced across all aspects of fitness would put you dead center of this circle. But if you want to work towards a specific goal, you might move away from this center for a while, but you're still training holistically for, uh, for the most part. So you're going to stay within that total fitness circle. And then once your event or your competition is over or you've reached that goal, you can start moving a little closer back towards the middle of that circle again. Just understand that it's okay for you to have minor losses in certain aspects of fitness while working towards a specific goal. Just don't completely drop everything in pursuit of a goal unless you are okay with temporarily curbing your total fitness to achieve that goal. Some fitness pursuits actually require you to do this, not just because you only have so much time and effort to train, but a goal like running a 50-mile race will shift some of your muscle fibers to become more endurant in nature 
or training for a powerlifting meet will make them more maximal strength focused. So your body will actually have to change and you will lose total fitness the more lofty your fitness goal is. So to sum up, the goal shouldn't be to try to keep everything up while working on a specific fitness goal. The thought process should be more of, what is the minimal effective dose for these other aspects of fitness while I work on this one to achieve this goal? Our next question is from my buddy Frank. Frank asks, are organic foods worth the money? So let's start by clarifying something here. There is no nutritional difference between an organic product and a non-organic product. Your body metabolizes the foods the same way, the exact same way. And this has been proven time and again. So from a pure calorie standpoint, there is no difference between organic apples and non-organic apples or organic versus non-organic cereal, or organic versus non-organic soup. It's all the same calories based on the composition of the food, not the chemicals used to keep bugs off of it or to kill the weeds around it in the field. And even organic products have chemicals used to help them grow because everything is chemicals. It's, it's just the classification of them, and honestly a lot of fear-mongering and emotional arguments that have scared people into thinking that they have to buy organic or they're going to get sick and die. They're going to have all of these different health issues because they didn't eat organic. Now, I've done my own research into Roundup or the ingredient glyphosate and cancer. And from the studies I see, I'm not worried about the minor traces that make their way into and then out of my body. In the tests done on mice with glyphosate, they're pumping these poor animals full of chemicals at levels no human would ever consume. And they're using mice that are already prone to certain cancers. So they're really just confirming their beliefs that they went into the study with. And then as for the, the actual toxicity of Roundup, whether or not it could kill you by drinking it, you would actually have to drink three gallons of Roundup to kill you. So using the standards that we measure toxicity, that actually makes glyphosate less toxic to humans than baking soda and salt. So you wouldn't think I shouldn't eat baking soda or salt because it's going to kill me. If you ate it at a high enough dose, it would. So with the small amount of glyphosate that ends up in our food, it's not going to cause cancer. It's not going to kill you. And even the studies done on long-term exposure to glyphosate in foods, so through fruits and vegetables, it shows that all these studies have shown that that glyphosate undergoes very little metabolism. It doesn't accumulate, and the majority of it is excreted mostly unchanged when it comes out in human waste products. And that's just one of the chemicals that people are afraid of, and, and they'll do this after reading one study they saw online. They're disregarding the hundreds of other studies that the FDA and the EPA have been conducting for years on agricultural companies and the way they grow food. So if a certain chemical scares you, I encourage you to do some research and see what's actually been proven about it. And I'll be 100% honest, I am open to having my mind changed. I've changed my mind plenty of times in the past when my opinion, I found out it wasn't backed by science, but it's going to take a lot to change me on this one just because of the mountain of evidence showing that eating organic is not necessarily healthier for you. That being said, most organic produce is from local farms typically. And I like the idea of supporting local farms and the produce actually usually tastes better because those foods are in season. So they typically have a higher micronutrient content. So if the price isn't bad, I'll definitely buy organic produce. Same time, 
I'm trying to feed my family, so it really comes down to the price for me since there isn't a nutritional difference, and I don't believe in pseudoscience, and I don't appreciate fear-mongering being used as a sales tactic to try to get me to buy something. Plus, I, I'm really tired of people thinking that organic macaroni and cheese or organic Oreos are somehow more healthy for you than non-organic kale or non-organic sweet potatoes. That's absurd. It has actually has a lot of people spending a lot of money on organic foods with little to no vitamins, minerals, or fiber, and they're they're afraid of spending less money on food that is not going to give them cancer or other health issues. So no, Frank, organic foods are not worth the money that they cost, in my opinion. I actually feel like we're going to have to do an entire episode on this, and GMOs, actually, now that you've got me started. So thank you, Frank, for giving me another uh, podcast episode idea now. Our next question is from Judy. Judy asks, when is the best time of day to take your vitamins? So for this, I want to take a quick detour before we get into when to take your vitamins and ask, why are you taking vitamins? So multivitamins usually contain vitamins A, D, E, K, B, and C, as well as minerals like calcium and iron. If you are eating a variety of foods and spending some time outside and staying active, you may not need a vitamin. I usually tell people to check to see if they are deficient in a micronutrient with a blood test before they go supplementing with it. I eat six pounds of sweet potatoes a week plus eggs and a lot of carrots, so I'm good on vitamin A. If I supplemented with it, it could potentially build up to dangerous levels in my body since vitamin A is a fat-soluble vitamin along with D, E, and K. So this means they aren't like B and C where you just urinate them out if you get too much. They actually hang around in your body. And with B and C, you're just wasting your money if you're eating enough fruits and vegetables and some animal products, which are the only places to get certain B vitamins naturally. So you don't need to take it in a supplement. It, you, you'll end up just excreting them out if you get too much vitamin B or C. So I eat a variety of fruits and vegetables, and from the way that I check them using an app called Chronometer, I can see how much of each vitamin I'm getting. So as far as I can see, I'm good on these vitamins. I also get vitamin E from avocados. I get vitamin K from green leafy vegetables. I get vitamin D from getting outside to work out whenever I can. So I don't feel a need for a multivitamin. If I started having symptoms where I thought I had a vitamin deficiency, I might get a blood test to, to see if I needed more of one, but I'm not having those symptoms. So you may not need a vitamin, but if you do, I would take it shortly after a meal or with a meal since taking them on an empty stomach tends to upset people's stomachs, but really just take them at a time when you know you are going to take them. They have no effect on your workout performance, so don't worry about timing them out with that. Honestly though, I would look at your diet first and see if you can get all of your vitamins, even the ones you're deficient in through your food, and do that before you take a supplement. Usually, your body does a better job processing the things that we take in through whole foods better than it does through vitamin supplementation. So speaking of supplements, our next question is from Erica. Erica asks, so many people take a wide variety of supplements for working out, pre- and post-workout supplements. Are they necessary, and which ones are best, and which would you recommend a person taking? All right, so this is one that when I get asked, I always give people the answer they don't want to hear. 
It's very similar to my vitamin answer, actually, and that's if you don't have your diet dialed in, meaning knowing your calories, knowing your macros, sticking to them, staying hydrated, and having a solid comprehensive fitness plan that you follow weekly. Oh, and you need to be sleeping eight hours of a night. Only after you have all of that in check should you go and look for a supplement. So to answer your first question, Erica, they aren't necessary for general health in most cases, but if you want to try some, I would suggest making sure everything else is dialed in first. Most of the time, people want to try a new pre-workout supplement to quote-unquote give them energy, when in fact, they just need a better diet, they need more sleep, and then they need a smarter fitness routine that will allow for proper recovery from workouts. As for post-workout supplements, the whole you have to eat within 30 minutes of your workout or it's like you didn't even work out, that whole deal isn't true. The more we understand protein synthesis in muscles, the more we're learning that it's more about getting the right amount of total protein and calories that determine muscle hypertrophy and repair. So if you are eating enough protein in your last meal before your workout and you eat some later on when you get home, you don't need a protein shake. Personally, I don't use protein shakes, but they are convenient and helpful for people who have trouble getting enough protein through food alone. Now, if you are going to take a pre- and post-workout supplement, here's what I would suggest. You want to find a pre-workout supplement with three things, caffeine, creatine, and beta-alanine. All of the other stuff that they put in those are usually fillers or flavoring things or, or roots and, and extracts to make you feel crazy while you're working out, but they really aren't helpful. Caffeine, creatine, and beta-alanine have been thoroughly studied, and they're safe for the majority of healthy adults who use them in moderation. Caffeine is a mild stimulant that increases your heart rate to supply more blood and more oxygen to your muscles while working out, plus it's a pain blocker, so it helps you push through difficult sets. I, I like 100 to 200 milligrams of caffeine anhydrous, which is the equivalent of one to two cups of coffee. You can get it online in pill form, and it's really, really, really cheap. Now, creatine is a substance that's found naturally in muscle cells, and it helps your muscles produce energy during heavy lifting or during high-intensity exercise. It also pulls water into your muscle cells to hydrate them, which can increase protein synthesis. Now, creatine has a bad rep from people who don't understand it, but it's been studied for years in athletics and has been proven safe for exercising adults. But not only that, now it's being studied for its positive effect on brain health and is even being used to treat patients with Alzheimer's and dementia. So right now, creatine is the only supplement that I take right now. I take five grams a day, every day. Beta-alanine is the other one that I mentioned of those three that are the ingredients that actually work in a pre-workout. And beta-alanine is a non-essential amino acid, meaning your body already makes some of it, but it's safe to take some more of it. And this is what gives people that tingling, that pins and needles sensation when they take it in a pre-workout. But eventually your body kind of gets used to that. Once it, it has to build up to a certain concentration level in your body. And once it does, it'll increase your body's carnosine levels, which keep your pH levels balanced so you can perform mechanical work more efficiently, meaning your muscles won't burn out on you as fast and you can do more work for longer periods of time. Carnosine is also a powerful antioxidant, so for general health, 
beta-alanine is being studied now as well. We know it's high, highly effective in athletic performance. Now we want to know what can it offer for everyone. I've also used citrulline malate in the past, which is a vasodilator, meaning it opens up the blood vessels to increase blood flow. And this can be helpful during exercise as well. Honestly, I would continue taking all of these supplements other than creatine if they weren't so expensive altogether. But right now, I would rather spend money on food than supplements. Creatine is cheap. I drink coffee if I need a boost before my workout. But most days, honestly, it's just creatine and good hydration prior to working out. Like I said before, I don't do protein shakes, but they are convenient if you need to hit your total protein numbers and you don't have a lot of time to eat that much protein. So supplementing with protein can help. I personally took a look at the amount of protein I could consume on a daily basis through Whole Foods and realized I don't need to use a supplement. I don't have a problem with them, it's just I don't need to spend money on that. Now if I change my diet in the future and it's easier to hit my numbers using a shake, I don't have a problem doing that. Now, as for the claims of whey protein and other liquid sources of protein being better because they're more quick, quickly absorbed or more quickly oxidized, that matters much less than we used to think that it did. So get a good quality, meaning little to no fillers, protein powder if you want to, but know that you don't need it, provided that you're getting enough protein in your daily diet. Our next question is from Jen. Jen asked, what are you supposed to do when you hit a weight loss plateau? This is a good question, Jen. This is one of the toughest parts about dieting down. Eventually, your body hits a point where the scale just doesn't want to move. And I know I say this all the time, but you have to know your calories. You don't have to count them every day if you eat similar foods, but you need to know what your general energy intake is so when you get stuck, you can see how much you need to cut out or where you can make that cut happen. Monitoring your caloric intake can keep you accountable and honest with yourself about what you're really eating. If your diet is in check and you start to relax a little bit too much, you're definitely going to hit that plateau sooner. But a lot of times the plateau occurs because you eventually do have to lower your calories once you lose weight in order to reflect your new weight. So if you hit a plateau, have your body fat checked and recalculate your calories based off of that and make sure that you're eating those calories. I always prefer to address plateaus through diet because it's the easiest way to manage caloric balance. But you could also change your workout routine so you're burning more calories rather than just eating less. And this is especially true if your calories are already kind of low or if you're finding yourself hungry all the time. Doing more strength training if you're typically just doing cardio or doing more cardio, if you just like lifting weights, this can make a difference here in your plateau that you've hit recently, if you ever hit that plateau. And how to break through that is either going to be dieting or training. Also, switching up the way you're training. You could try circuits. You could try heavier weights. You could try higher reps. You could try intervals instead of steady state cardio. Switching things may help, but again, it's all about calories in and calories out. So you need to know what you're eating and make adjustments when you hit those little speed bumps because they're going to happen. So be patient. Losing weight is a journey. It's not an overnight change. You may lose nothing one week and then a pound or two in the next. I wouldn't change anything really unless your weight hasn't moved in three weeks of being religiously consistent with your diet. But yeah, those plateaus suck. It's just you've got to know your calories and you have to take a good look at your workout routine and get all of that stuff in check before you start making too many changes. Okay, on to our question from Kate. Kate asked, 
what are the best non-chicken protein sources? Man, Kate is really struggling with chicken these days. So Kate is sick of chicken breast and she wants to try something different. Now, chicken breast is great because it's not super expensive, at least where I get it. And it's very low in fat because it's basically all protein. So this makes it easy to factor into your total calories and your macros. And finally, it's pretty much a blank canvas that you can make it you can make it taste like just about anything, which is why I guess everything tastes like chicken. Uh, personally, I don't mind it, and I eat most of my protein through chicken breast throughout the day, but I understand that some people don't like the texture or they don't like the flavor of it. So if you're going to sub something for chicken breast and you need it to match the same calories, it's going to need to be a super lean meat like turkey breast, which is really just the same as chicken breast, uh, or white fish or tuna or very lean cuts of beef or pork. If you don't mind using some of your daily fat calories on the fat in the meat, you've got a lot more options though. So other cuts of pork or beef that aren't quite as lean, ground turkey, ground chicken, uh, fatty fish like salmon. Just remember to factor in the fact that the fat in those cuts mean means that the four ounces of that 80-20 ground beef is going to have a lot more calories than four ounces of chicken breast just due to the fat. So you may need to adjust your fat intake elsewhere during the day to account for this. As for mixing it up, we have a Wegmans in Frederick that has some wild game options. So you could try bison or elk or boar or ostrich, something weird like that to expand your options. Uh, we're also in an area that's not hard to score some venison. So if you uh, would like to add that, you could have a friend that hunts or you could happen to hit a deer on the backcountry roads of Frederick. Just kidding. Not really though. I'm from West Virginia, born and raised, so I'll just I'll just leave it at that. Uh, uh, but again, you don't have to be confined to just meat. You got a lot of options. Uh, dairy products are a great source of protein if your body handles dairy okay, and there are tons of plant sources of protein as well. Just remember that both dairy and plant sources of protein may have more calories from carbs or from fat than chicken breast. So adjust those total daily calories accordingly. Also, no single plant source of protein contains all essential amino acids, so you need to eat a variety of them in your diet or eat some animal sources of protein here and there as well to make sure that you're getting enough total amino acids for your body to actually do what it needs to do with the protein that you're eating. Finally, for our last question, John asks, why do Smith machines exist? So for those of you who don't know what a Smith machine is, it's a barbell that's fixed on a track that runs along a rack that kind of looks like a squat rack. People use it for squats and bench presses, uh, shoulder presses, basically anything that you would use a normal barbell for, but it's not the same thing. The reason why John and I are not fans of this machine is because people are often told that they need to learn how to squat and how to bench on a Smith machine before graduating to a bar. The problem here is that with a Smith machine, you can load up the bar with weight and just go without ever really learning to actually balance and control a bar throughout your range of motion. The bar is fixed on a path that is not a natural human range of motion. Now when you press or squat, the bar should move in as vertical of a path as possible, but depending on your biomechanics, the bar might have a slight deviation. 
which the Smith machine does not allow you to perform. I've seen guys who can squat 315 on a Smith machine not able to balance 185 with a free bar on the squat. And the same with bench press. I was taught to squat on the Smith machine and I'm glad that I was quickly retaught by someone else and then continue to teach myself after that because your body adapts to the patterns that you repeatedly do. So all of these people using Smith machines are adapting to a pattern of a machine, not their body's natural pattern or learning to correctly teach their body how to move. Now the reason that Smith machines were made was originally for gym safety. There are safety stops on the machine and the bar rotates so that you can rack it just about anywhere along the bar path. So the designers thought, this is great, people can lift by themselves now. But they didn't realize that in an effort to make lifting safer, they actually made people's other lifts away from the Smith machine more dangerous because these people are losing the ability to stabilize loads away from the track of the Smith machine. Oh, and if the makers of the Smith Machine were to hop on YouTube for a bit and search Smith Machine Fails, they would quickly see that it can definitely be unsafe for lifters. Now, all of this being said, there are a couple of okay uses for a Smith Machine. One is to use it to perform incline push-ups with, with people who can't do them on the floor yet. You can raise and lower the bar so the athlete can perform the reps with good mechanics at a level they can manage. Then you can go under the bar to do horizontal pull-ups similar to ring rows or TRX rows if you've ever done those. And again, raising or lowering the bar just like on the push-up can change the stimulus for the user. Also, I've used the Smith machine with the bar set around like rib height as a ballet bar so I can have clients with significant balance issues learn to lunge or to squat with something to hold on to lightly if they start to lose their balance. So John, we don't have to get rid of the Smith machine, but we definitely don't need them. Thanks to everyone who submitted questions. We'll definitely be doing this again. So if you have a fitness, health, or nutrition question, send me a message on social media using the handle at straightshottraining. I'm not sure what platform you're listening to this on right now, but we are on Spotify now for those of you who get your podcasts and music there. That's my go-to app for audio content. So if you would like to follow us there, just search for Straight Shot Radio under the podcasts. If you can leave us a rating on whatever platform you're currently listening to us on, that would be awesome. And head over to straightshottraining.com if you're interested in a monthly subscription to our comprehensive training program. You'll get six workouts a week that include everything. Mobility, prehab, strength, conditioning work, cooldowns, video coaching calls, and our nutrition protocol, all for just $21 a month. That's like two pints of organic blueberries for a month of coaching. And if you're just looking for a movement and mobility program to use as a supplement to your current workout regimen, check out our Resilient program. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week, everybody.